<clears throat> Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. It's your first week at a highly respected investment firm. You're very excited because this is your dream job. The company you're working for now, they're the leaders in the industry. And so you're excited to get to work and learn everything that you're going to learn at this new organization. But then your first week, your supervisor sits you down and says, listen, you're on my sales team now, and we're going to need to get a few things straight. If you're on my sales team, you need to know that every year, my sales team wins the award for highest sales in the company. And here's how we do it. We sell two products, product A and product B. Product A consistently gets the best yield for our clients, but product B gets us a higher commission. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to be selling product B whenever you possibly can. What do you do? This person is in power over you. This person seemingly has your future career in their hands to do what they want with. And this is the industry leader. You might not get another job if you confront this person. But no matter how difficult it is, in this situation, it's a decision, right? It's a decision between confrontation and compromise. And we don't just face situations like that in the workplace. From the earliest days of the Christian church, Christians have been facing these situations, these showdowns of power between uh, themselves and people who are in authority over them in some case. And time and time again, Christians, and we read it in the book of Acts in the early church, they have to lean on the words of Jesus right before he left them. When he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. And you know those words, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me, those words of Jesus are easy to believe in theory. They're easy to believe intellectually, right? They're a lot harder to believe in practice as, the, as those words actually shape our lives when we're faced with a situation like that. Um, in our text today, we're going to see some of Jesus' early followers faced with a test of whether they really believe those words, that all authority in heaven and on earth belong to Jesus. Would you turn there with me to Acts chapter 13? Acts chapter 13. Um, last year, the 2017-2018 church year, we started this sermon series through the book of Acts. Acts is the book that talks about the works of the risen Jesus through the Holy Spirit, in the lives of his earliest followers, that first generation. Um, we took a little break, so, but by uh, January we had gotten to chapter 13, which is kind of the hinge point in the book. Chapter 13 is when the book kind of starts to focus primarily, almost exclusively, on the uh, ministry of Paul and those who were traveling with him. In this 2018-19 church year, we're going to finish the book of Acts, actually. And so today, we're returning to these early verses in chapter 13 that are at the hinge of the book, so to speak. And uh, we're going to pick up the story there and reorient ourselves after a couple months off. So we're going to be picking up the story in verse 4. Barnabas and Saul, as he was then called, have just been sent out from Antioch, and they're beginning what is usually called Paul's first missionary journey. This is the years maybe 46 or 47 AD. And the first place they're going to go is the island of Cyprus, which is actually Barnabas's 
homeland where Barnabas comes from. Follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 4 of Acts chapter 13. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they, that's Barnabas and Saul, went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. There are several interesting features in this text. You know, we see the pattern start to develop here that Jesus' followers go to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. We see Paul's Roman name, Paul, get introduced. Um, We see the church gaining some legitimacy as even a Roman official comes to the faith. Um, But I don't want to focus on the trivia in this passage as much today as I want to focus on just uh, this big idea. The big idea that um, is relevant for all of us, that we need to be ready to confront powerful people with powerful truth. Let's be ready to confront powerful people with powerful truth. There's power and a power confrontation that dominates this passage. And I want to look today at just two features of the power that we have in Jesus. Number one, the power we have in Jesus is greater than any other power. The power we have in Jesus is greater than any other power. We've got this magician, right, in verse 6. Uh, but to call him a mag- magician doesn't quite do justice to what he was. This isn't somebody who's uh, pulling quarters from behind little kids' ears, right, or telling you what card you had chosen from the deck. There's something more dark at play, something more sinister. Um, magicians in this day are people who would tap into some spiritual forces in the unseen realm to heal disease, to curse or harm their enemies, to predict the future. And apparently this guy, Elymas, was pretty successful in it because he had gained a reputation um, as such, as even to the point where he had the ear of the proconsul of Cyprus, um, a very high-ranking official. Before we smirk at these ancient people who believed in uh, magic, we, should, we would do well to remember that there are things going on in the unseen realm that, we, um, that are invisible to us. The God's word tells us that unseen forces of light and darkness are battling all around us at any given moment. And so there's more going on here than what's on the surface with this man, Elymas. He's called a Jewish false prophet in verse 6. Paul calls him a son of the devil in verse 10. And based on how he's talked about here, 
I think it's important that we conclude there's some real power going on in Elemis's life. Um, there's some spiritual power, power. In other words, there are demonic forces, actually, that are empowering Elemis to do the magic, so-called, that he's doing. This isn't just sleight of hand. The problem is that his spiritual power is being used in open, direct opposition to the power of Jesus Christ that's on display in the lives of Barnabas and Saul. Um, picture Barnabas and Saul. They get called to the proconsul who wants to hear more about the faith. And so you imagine they're excited. This is a high-ranking official. We get to go share the gospel with him at his invitation. This man reports directly to the Senate of Rome. He's extremely influential. So you imagine there's some excitement, and then they get there, and there at the proconsul's side is this magician who is constantly going behind them and saying, that's not true, that's not true, and trying to persuade the proconsul not to believe what Barnabas and Saul are saying when they are presenting the gospel. And we can kind of sense here that the proconsul is torn, right? Saul and Barnabas, what they're saying makes a lot of sense to him. He's a smart man. Intellectually, it's appealing to him. But he's had this long-term relationship with this magician whom he's seen tap into some powers, some authority that he himself, as a proconsul, doesn't have access to. And so if this magician's saying it's wrong, well, maybe he should be listened to. He's got access to some power. So we've got a conflicted proconsul here, and we can see how the confrontation is shaping up in the early verses of our passage. Right at the beginning of Paul and Barnabas' first journey together, they're facing extreme opposition from our enemy. And you know, that's almost always true for us when we are walking in step with the Holy Spirit, that we will face opposition. Maybe some of you have experienced that in your own lives, that uh, we almost always face serious opposition when we're on the right track. Every time we see an Acts, every time the gospel goes to a new place in the book of Acts, there is extreme opposition that they face from spiritual forces. This isn't even the first magician we've seen in the book of Acts. Back in chapter 8, Peter had a showdown with the magician. Um, the enemy tends to dig in whenever the kingdom of God is invading a place where King Jesus hadn't currently been acknowledged as reigning there. Um, but here we've got uh, a caveat, because we should expect the same if we are walking in step with Jesus and living on mission for him. But of course there's a caveat to that, because there's a certain type of person who believes that every time they're facing opposition, that means they're on the right track. You know what I mean? And it sounds super spiritual for us when things are going wrong in our lives to say, you know what, the devil doesn't want us to succeed. That's why things are going wrong in my life. You know, and we think we're on the right track and it puffs ourselves up and we align ourselves with God. But we should acknowledge, though, that not all negative circumstances are spiritual opposition. Sometimes our circumstances just go negative because we make bad decisions and we're not walking in step with the Holy Spirit. And so our circumstances just play out like they naturally do, and things go wrong for us. So not all negative circumstances are spiritual opposition, but that caveat aside, the truth still remains that if we are walking in step with the Spirit, and if we are living on mission for Jesus, we will face spiritual enemies who oppose us. New Testament calls them the powers or the principalities or the forces of evil in the unseen realms. And sometimes even in the New Testament, 
It calls them systems of thought that raise themselves up against the living God. Here's what I'm thinking about. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The same Paul talked about in our passage says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And we see him doing just that in our passage in Acts today. But then he goes on to say, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. In other words, he's destroying strongholds. And then the next verse, he goes to destroying arguments. And we see the strongholds talked about here get fleshed out with arguments, opinions, and thoughts. In the next verse, there's at least some connection here between these forces of evil and these systems of thought that exist in the world that set themselves up against the living God. So if we're looking for these strongholds in our own day, if we're looking for where they exist, we might do well to think about systems of thought that exist all around us that set themselves up in opposition to our God. Um, Early on in Acts, there were several of these systems that the apostles kept facing over and over again. Judaism, the sort of Judaism that didn't believe in Messiah Jesus, right? Um, Greco-Roman traditional paganism or polytheism, right? They keep coming up against that time and time again. And magic, sometimes associated with a religion like Judaism, sometimes not associated with any religion. They keep facing these systems of thought that raise themselves up against the living God. Later, it's a system called Gnosticism. But in every time and place in the history of the Christian church, we've had enemies that were working against us in the form of philosophical systems that raise themselves up in opposition to the living God. So maybe you are asking the question that I ask when I think about things like this. What what, what are those things today? Where are the strongholds today that manifest themselves in systems of thought that raise themselves up against the living God? Uh, I think there are many that we could name. I want to talk about two categories, though, this morning of systems of thought that raise themselves up against the living God where we live today in 2018. Um, One category of such systems of thought are these liberal ideologies that exist today, right? These liberal ideologies that say that um, Christians aren't worth listening to because they are narrow-minded. They are bigoted, right? Um, These liberal ideologies that say that any belief system is okay as long as it's not exclusive, as long as it doesn't say it's the only way to God or the only way to live, right? Um, And so many people, including some professing Christians, have been led astray, actually, by these liberal ideologies to the point where they think of themselves as believers in Jesus Christ, but they've bought into the system of thought that there are many ways to God, And eventually, we're all going to get in, right? And they don't know that they've been deceived because they've believed in the gospel of tolerance and not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is an ideology that needs to be opposed by us as believers in Jesus. There's another category of ideologies that sets itself up against the risen Jesus and his authority, and it's conservative ideologies, What I'm talking about are these conservative ideologies, certain conservative ideologies, that present Christianity as 
being comfortable with nativism, as being comfortable with greed and accumulation of excess wealth in the hands of a few, that present Christianity as being comfortable with uh, oppression or being comfortable with not showing compassion to the immigrant and the widow and the um, foreigner in our midst, right? But many people, including some professing believers, have been deceived by these ideologies. And so they come to church week after week and sit in their pews and they think that they belong to Jesus when really what they've bought into is the gospel of Fox News and not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so these conservative ideologies need to be opposed by us who belong to Jesus Christ. We're getting into some deep waters here that I know not all of you may be interested in swimming in this morning. Um, We're talking about enemies. We're talking about powers. We're talking about principalities, confrontations. Some of you are like, this isn't what I signed up for. When I first gave my life to Jesus, the preacher just said I needed to stop sleeping around and stop getting drunk and go to church every once in a while, and I was good. Enemies? What are you talking about? Enemies? I didn't get in for dealing with enemies. What I'm talking about here is the real thing. Real Christianity. Um, It's not a safe version of Christianity. It's not a comfortable version of Christianity because I'm not convinced that those are versions of Christianity. Christianity is a battle. And it's dangerous. And to the extent that we hear that and we feel offended because our safe, comfortable Christianity feels threatened or challenged, I want to suggest that maybe what we're actually offended by is by Jesus and by Paul. Here's what Jesus said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's what he said to his followers. He said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul said, all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The real deal involves confrontation. It involves facing opposition. Um, It's hard. It's dangerous. And if we're not in for the real deal, I just want to ask this morning, why are we wasting our time? We might as well pack it up if we're not in for the real thing. If we're just going to spend our lives going through the motions of something that looks like Christianity but doesn't ever involve living the way Jesus said we would live if we were actually following him, why waste our time anymore? Some of you are thinking, actually, I am in for that. I do want the real thing. I want real Christianity, but what does it mean? Tell me what it means. What does that look like? Hopefully, if you spend enough time around here, you will hear us preach through the Bible and preach the whole counsel of God, and you'll get a full picture of what it looks like to live the real deal. Uh, But the part that's in our particular text this morning is that part of the real deal means being willing to confront opposition head-on when that's what's needed, when that's what's called for. Now, some of you, when you hear that word confront, um, we respond differently to that word based on, partly based on what kind of circles we run in, right? So um, I'm thinking of a shift that's been taking place with regard to confrontation in our culture recently. And this isn't really a generational divide as much as it's a shift that's taking place within each and every age demographic that is in our country right now. Um, 10 to 15 years ago, 
age demographics pretty much across the board were feeling threatened by this rise of moral relativism. You may have heard of that, right? It's the idea that what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. Don't tell me I'm wrong because nobody can tell anybody else that they're wrong. And there's no confrontation involved in moral relativism because uh, to confront someone is to imply that they're wrong. And nobody's wrong because what's true for you is true for you. So some Christians during this time of moral relativism, many Christians were decrying moral relativism, obviously, but some Christians decided, well, we shouldn't confront people then. We shouldn't be too bold about sharing our faith. We need to just kind of pull back and kind of try to be gently persuasive over the long term because people don't want to be confronted anymore, right? But there's a shift taking place. Some of you are aware of it. Um, Just in the last few years, it's really accelerated. And um, it's accelerated to the point where The Atlantic, actually last year, uh, posted an article declaring that moral relativism is dead. Did you know that? Moral relativism is dead. It's been replaced by this outrage culture. An outrage culture, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say say it that way, because you're on social media and you see what people are posting, right? And why I say it's not a generational difference is because I think what, I, what I've seen anyway is that this is true for people my generation and older and younger. What I mean is the same people who 10 years ago were saying what's true for you is true for you and not, let's not confront anybody are now confronting lots of people. Let's, let's set up a march. Let's protest. Let's pick it. There are things in this world worth, worth speaking out against, right? So is this good or bad for the church? I would say Yes. Um, it's bad in that we're one step closer to getting thrown in jail because we teach the exclusivity of Christ that you can't come to the Father without coming through Jesus Christ, right? But it's good in the sense that, hey, we're back on level ground in some ways in the dialogue that's taking place in our culture, right? Um, everybody, pretty much, almost everybody, within a few years it'll be just about everybody, acknowledges that there are some things that are really wrong in the world right now and should be protested and confronted because they are that wrong and they're worth speaking out against, right? So now we're back on equal footing because we believe that too. It's just a difference of what those things are and aren't. Um, So confrontation can take place, and we see it happen in verse 10. Think about those words that Paul says again. Picture that scene as he looks Elemis straight in the eyes. And says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? It's intense. Um, But friends, God may call you and I to a similarly intense encounter at some point during our lives. Um, He may fill us with his spirit to do just that. But we won't be ready for it. We won't be ready to do it if we've bought into this narrative um, that was anti-Christian from the beginning, but is even outdated in our culture's eyes now that we should avoid confrontation at all costs, right? That's not Christianity. Um, Of course, there's another caveat needed at this point. There's probably multiple caveats needed. But one important one is that Do not attempt verse 10 without verse 9. Look at that again. Verse 10 is that confrontation, and there's a certain sort of person who reads that and gets all puffed up and is like, man, this afternoon I'm going to let my wife have it. 
And I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm empowered, I'm emboldened now to just speak my mind, right? But that's not what's going on here. Look at verse 9. Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit when he says these words. And that's huge, right? The worst thing you could possibly do with this passage is use it as a license to confront or villainize someone um, just because you disagree with them. To use God as an excuse to beat somebody down with your own agenda. That's the worst kind of Christian that there is in some ways. Paul does this filled with the Holy Spirit. And we can be filled with that same Holy Spirit. Actually, do you know we're commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5? It's a command for us. And how does that work out? Well, the Spirit, when he fills us, empowers us to do exactly what's needed in a given moment. Here for Paul, what the Spirit empowers him to do is to see what's unseen in this man's heart. The Spirit empowers him to speak a prophetic word, exposing what's invisible. And then the blindness that this man experiences validates that it actually was the hand of God that was causing all this to happen and that was standing behind the truth of Paul's words, exposing this man's character. Uh, Let's not miss the significance, please of being filled with the Holy Spirit in this confrontation. There's a huge difference between confronting someone when you're filled with the Holy Spirit to do so and abusively venting your self-righteous judgment on someone you disagree with. We ought never to confront like this unless the Holy Spirit is the one empowering us and helping us to get our own agenda out of the way. Um, So... The power we have in Jesus is greater than any other power. That was the first point we wanted to see about Jesus' power. The second point is going to be much more brief. And it's just that the power we have in Jesus can remove obstacles to unbelief. The power we have in Jesus can remove obstacles to unbelief. I'm thinking about this proconsul, Sergius Paulus. There are many obstacles to him coming to faith in Christ, aren't there? His power and status is one significant obstacle, actually. We know that people who are in high positions, um, who have every sort of ability and power that they want, um, it's really hard to be someone in that position and feel yourself to be in great need of a Savior. So he's got that obstacle, and then he's got the added obstacle of someone in his ear day after day who is telling him that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not true and trying to persuade him not to believe in it. So what are the chances that somebody like this is going to come to faith in Jesus? But then God does it. God allows a display of power that removes the obstacles from this man's life and allows Paul to be used to bring the least likely to Jesus. I think maybe just an application of that is just to think in our own lives, who are those people? Who's the Sergius Paulus in your life? The person that you think is among the least likely to come to faith in Jesus, and so maybe you never really even think to pray for them because it's so unlikely. Maybe because of their high status and they don't feel any needs in their life, or maybe because those voices that they have in their ears trying to dissuade them from the faith. Um, We see here that Saul and Barnabas believe that this man could come to faith in Christ. Maybe we ought to do the same with some others in our own lives. But I want to think some more about Saul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas believing that this man can come to faith in Jesus. It's actually pretty remarkable the way they approach this because of this man's power. And here's what I mean. I think there are at least three ways that Saul and Barnabas could have responded to an invitation from a man with so much power. This is the governor of the whole Roman province, right? 
I think if I'm in their shoes, I could maybe go to the place where I'm intimidated by this person in power. Um, Yes, the Romans are cool with a lot of different religions existing in their empire, as long as none of those religions claim to be exclusive, the only way to God, right? Yeah, the Romans are cool with a lot of different religions existing in their empire, as long as you're still willing to bow the knee to the emperor, right? Christianity claims to be the only way to God and won't bow the knee to the emperor, right? So if I'm Saul and Barnabas, I might be intimidated as they go to meet with the proconsul. Um, What if this goes wrong? What if he hears the ins and outs of what we actually believe and turns on us? We could be in real danger. Second, they might have been dismissive. Uh, A lot of us feel that way toward authority structures nowadays, right? Like, he's never going to believe. I've known Roman... Uh, officials before. They're all bad. They're all corrupt. They're all wicked. We're not even going to accept his invitation to come see him because he's not going to listen anyway. They could have been enamored on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. They could have gotten the invitation and looked at each other and said, look, we got invited to see Sergius Paulus, the proconsul. This is crazy. Let's go. And we're going to be able to Instagram a picture with him. And uh, everybody's going to be jealous of us that they got to go there. And wait, we should, we should kind of tone down the message though when we go. Because if we don't, we might never be invited back. We want to be invited back again. We want to be in this guy's inner circle, right? You can imagine going to some of those places, intimidated, dismissive, or enamored. But Saul and Barnabas do none of the three. Instead, they see this man as he is, as another human like them, made in the image of God, uh, who's been given power by God, um, but who is searching for something real, and has a need in his life, and they see that need in him. I think there's a lesson in that for us with our own bosses, our own supervisors, our own parents, our own teachers. Paul and Barnabas are respectful to him. Right? They don't speak to him the way they spoke to Elymas a little bit earlier. But they do boldly speak the truth to him regardless of the power he has. And Paul will continue to do so throughout the book of Acts with various Roman officials. So, friends, the takeaway for us there in this portion of the text is don't be intimidated, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And if we have the Holy Spirit, we carry that authority with us as we go. There's nothing to be intimidated by with the earthly powers. Don't be dismissive. Also, not all authority figures are bad. God instituted authority and wants us to show honor to those in authority. That should stop us before we become so cynical that we don't believe that someone in a position of power can come to know Jesus. And finally, don't be enamored. Billy Graham learned this lesson. Maybe you heard that in the uh, conversations that were going on around the time of his death. He had very little to regret in his life and ministry, but one of the regrets he always would cite is that he got so comfortable being um, an advisor in the White House that during the presidency of Richard Nixon, he would say, in his own words, that he was enamored. Uh, with the access to power that he had. And so he let it blind him to some things that were going on there in Richard Nixon's life. And Billy Graham was outspoken in support of Richard Nixon and his moral character and this and that and just went too far with it. And obviously the way President Nixon's life turned out and, and what got exposed about what was going on behind the scenes, Billy Graham was embarrassed and felt like it had brought shame to the gospel because here this preacher had given credibility to someone he ought never have given credibility to. And so he regretted that, and the rest of his life he learned from that lesson and was very intentional about not getting enamored with access to power. 
The model we see here in this text is not to be intimidated, not to be dismissive, not to be enamored, but instead to lovingly, uh, respectfully confront powerful people with a powerful truth. It's a fourth way. And that was our big idea for today, just to be ready to do just that, to confront powerful people with powerful truth. Elemis was powerful in a spiritual sense. He had some power that not many around him had. And also he had the ear of someone with great earthly power. And so there was a major power confrontation taking place here in Acts 13. And Acts 13 verses 4 through 12 are a reminder to us that we ought to be ready for some power confrontations that may take place in our own neighborhoods and homes and workplaces and where we go. As we're moving toward concluding here, I want to give four examples of just how this might come up in our own lives. One of them we mentioned at the outset in workplace ethical questions, right? Your supervisor asks you to participate in something unjust or immoral. Are you going to be scared by that person's power? Or are you going to believe that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus? Two, we ought to be prepared that sometimes when we speak the truth, people's treasures are going to be threatened. What people treasure most deeply in their hearts is going to be threatened by the gospel that we proclaim. Elymas was glad to leave Christians alone until it threatened his standing with the proconsul, right? Until he started worrying, this proconsul believes I'm going to lose my status as advisor. I need to make sure that he doesn't believe, right? The same thing's going to happen in our own lives with our own friends and family members. They'll be cool with us being Christians until what we're teaching starts to rub up against the things that they value the most in their hearts, and we ought to be prepared for that. Um, We ought to be prepared to confront false prophets in our day, people who lead others astray by portraying falsehood in spiritual garb, right? They wrap up false teachings and make them sound spiritual so that it sounds like, oh, maybe this aligns with Christianity or aligns with the one true God. That's what Elamis did, right? That's why it's important that he's a Jewish false teacher. There's some sort of um, assertion taking place that, oh, this is, you can be cool. You can worship the one true God and still do this magic that I'm doing, right? And it makes us think, what sort of books, what sort of podcasts, what sort of news outlets are doing just this in our day, cloaking falsehood in a veneer of spirituality. And finally, people in our hometowns. I say that because this is their first stop on their journey, and they went back to Barnabas's hometown first, his homeland of Cyprus, right? And just thinking that all this took place in, in uh, Barnabas's homeland might move some of us to begin being bold with those who have known us the longest. Our family members, extended family, our friends from long, long ago, do they all know the truth that you hold to? Do they know the power behind the truth that you hold to? Our big idea today was about confronting powerful people with powerful truth. And where some of you go with that is that you say, hey, let's, let's do a Sunday school class helping us to really line out the logic of our faith so that we can be prepared for these arguments and systematically tear down the uh, other systems of thought that exist in the world. Right? And there's certainly a place for that. But the question that's more directly raised by what happens in our text, I think, is what am I doing to cultivate a power in my life that 
a sort of power that would make even intelligent, powerful people astonished at the power behind what I say. When people see that power underneath the truth that we're teaching, that's when they start to conclude, hey, this is the real deal. And now I can see in hindsight, now that I see that this is the real deal, I can see that these other philosophies that I've been holding to for so long, those are not the real deal. If you want to experience the real deal, friends, so do I. Let's pray and ask God that he would fill us with his Holy Spirit to give us the sort of power that Paul has access to here and that is offered to all of us as Christians. If you're not looking for that, if that's not something you want, if you just came here this morning to check a box and say that you went to church, I would just ask you respectfully, why are you wasting your time? Our King Jesus, we learned last week on Holy Week, he died in our place to take the punishment that we deserved for our sin. And then he rose again from the dead in power and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sits right now and where all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. All authority means that migration patterns of geese and polar vortexes and the hearts of kings and the rise and fall of empires all are orchestrated and, uh, by the powerful hand of King Jesus under whom all authority rests. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus. The powers that we are going to face in this life are strong, but they're not Jesus strong. Let's pray. Lord, we want our lives to be filled with that power. We know that that's not a power just reserved for a select few, the apostles or some sort of super Christians, but we know that you tell us that that authority is given to us as well as your followers here on this earth who have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And so, Lord, help us seek you, and please fill us with your Spirit, especially in those times in which you want us to step up and be bold in some sort of confrontation or discussion with someone um, who needs the truth that we carry with us. In Jesus' name, amen. One question was, what specific conservative ideology is promoting oppression? Probably most notably at the far right as uh, it came to prominence the last few years with the alt-right and some of the attitudes of nativism that uh, went along with that that promoted and still promote oppression of uh, people who don't fit a um, racial and maybe socioeconomic mold uh, that is the majority culture. Um, a couple of the questions fell under the rubric of, okay, in this specific situation, how would I confront or would I not confront? And I think that's very important for us to sift through. Um, I thought that would probably be a question that was raised, and so I gave it some thought this weekend, and I uh, probably should have just included this in my sermon proactively. Um, but a couple thoughts about this, because I think it's an important question, because sometimes Jesus turned over tables, right? And other times he bent down and wrote in the sand. Um, Paul used respectful persuasion, and he used in-your-face confrontation. So we should be ready to do both, and there's no formula for when to do each. Uh, we need the Holy Spirit to guide us, but I think there are some questions to ask in a given situation, okay? So here are five questions 
to ask that will help us determine how, how much to confront versus how much to gently persuade over time. One, how egregious is the error? Okay? The more egregious the error is, the more likely that it needs to be confronted as opposed to just winsomely persuaded over time. Two, how blatantly willful is the opposition to God involved in the error? So if it's someone who's just shaking their fist at God and rebelling in that, there's more likelihood that it needs to be confronted as opposed to gently dealt with. Um, should the person know better? If the person should, if the person should know better, uh, in the case of maybe Paul confronting Peter to his face at one point, uh, that can be called for if the person should know better. Um, for how influential is the person? So how likely are they to lead others astray? Right? That's probably what factored into Elemis being confronted so harshly and directly because his error was actually going to lead so many others into error, including the proconsul. And finally, how is my heart in it? Right? If my heart's filled with all sorts of my own personal anger toward this person, then it's probably not the time for me to confront in a, in a very forceful way. So just five factors to consider as you're considering, is this a time for confrontation or is this a time for uh, gent- gently working with the person? Final question. I read that our White House has a weekly cabinet-level Bible study for the first time in 100-plus years. How do we pray for them? I think for me the question uh, so much more often is that I know how to pray for them, right? Just like I'd pray for anyone else, um, but I don't do it, you know? So am I praying for them is the question. And so um, I know that there's several groups within our church that are consistent and faithful about praying for our leaders and those in authority like we're called to do in Scripture. And I've been challenged by that to ramp up those own efforts in my own life for salvation, for just policies, um, and for uh, freedom to continue to be in our country to proclaim the gospel. Thanks so much for the questions and the participation in the sermon and beyond. Let me leave you with uh, a benediction, a blessing from the book of Ephesians that deals with this power that we talked about today. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Let's live for his glory this week. Amen.